Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are coming to you with yet another extraordinary poem. And very quickly before we get into it, our periodic reminder that if you have the time and you are so inclined, we always appreciate ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts slash the iTunes store. They are a great way to help more people find the podcast. They boost us up the algorithm. And they also, as we have mentioned a couple of times, warm our hearts because it's great to know that what we're putting out there means something to all you. And uh, yeah, it's really lovely. I second all of that. I think just in general for both this poem and a lot of what we're going to discuss, a content warning for graphic violence um, and discussions of lynching. So the poem we have today is some pretty tough material, just an incredible poem. It is called The Lynching by Claude McKay. Yes, we will, in fact, talk about the content. I was reading an article. Um, I don't know if it was about this poem, but or maybe there was, I think, a Richard Wright there's a Richard Wright poem um, that also is about a lynching. And I was reading an article about like um, the literature of lynching. And apparently there are some like kind of AP style or like, uh, you know, like literature analysis Kaplan kind of thing that was like about one of these poems and the like expected answers in like the teacher's guide or the grader's guide was like a student will notice the wonderful imagistic movement in the poem and will discuss like uh the use of rhyme and alliteration and stuff and made no mention of the content of the whole poem (laughs) so that's (laughs) so incredible (laughs) And awful. Yeah. So, if you're wondering how deep systemic racism runs, yes, in fact, the tests are racist too. Yes, they are. Big time. Big time. Yes. Um, the Richard Wright poem, Between the World and Me, from which the Ta-Nehisi Coates book takes its title. Yes, precisely. Um, but the poem that we are discussing, and I'm sure we will get into all of that stuff, and Between the World and Me, because that's also an incredible poem. Uh, But the poem that we are discussing is just called The Lynching by Claude McKay, whose full name, Faustus Claudius McKay, which is, if you're going to have names, pretty good name. Um, And he was a (laughs) fascinating guy. He was a world traveler, part of the Harlem Renaissance, not just a poet, but also wrote short stories, novels, wrote autobiographical uh, books. I believe uh, he wrote an autobiography called um, A Long Way From Home, which talked about some of his world travels in addition to, you know, just covering a fascinating life that was also lived through letters. Oh, and uh, Claude McKay is widely believed to be bisexual. That's a whole other aspect of the many different things that he was, you know, he was born in 1889. This poem was written in 1922. It was not a particularly easy time in America to be any of the things that he was. So... He was um, born, I believe, in Jamaica. Yes, perhaps. Born in Jamaica, and then moved to New York. Yeah, being able to have that perspective—that's something that I know, sort of in a 
reverse way that James Baldwin has talked about, which is how different he found moving from the United States to another country and how that sort of reframed the way that he looked at the United States. Um, But yeah, this is The Lynching by Claude McKay. His spirit is smoke ascended to high heaven. His father, by the cruelest way of pain, had bidden him to his bosom once again. The awful sin remained, still unforgiven. All night, a bright and solitary star, perchance the one that ever guided him, it gave him up, at last, to fate's wild whim, hung pitifully o'er the swinging char. Day dawned, and soon the mixed crowd came to view the ghastly body swaying in the sun. The women thronged to look, but never a one showed sorrow in her eyes of steely blue. And little lads, lynchers that were to be, danced round the dreadful thing in fiendish glee. Oof. Yeah, it's, uh, it's powerful stuff. As you may have caught on, based on how it sounds, it is in fact a sonnet. Yes, and it is. There's a whole lot wrapped up in, in meaning going on there, um, even aside from the, the subject matter in terms of the poetic tradition that it's writing itself into, um, and also the politics around Black writing at the time, because there was this tension going on. Um, and I know it particularly came up for uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar when he was starting out where he wanted to write in a European tradition as a black writer. And then it was his dialect poems that he was being asked for. And so there's this interesting, you know, he ends up being a disruptive force in the canon and bringing some of that dialect into American poetry. But at the same time, it's because white editors want a certain version of a black writer. And uh, that is sort of some of the literary groundwork that got laid before Claude McKay, because Paul Lawrence Dunbar was writing a little earlier on. Um, This poem was written in 1922. Paul Lawrence Dunbar is writing like more turn of the 20th century. Um, But that's a whole other element that's going on, even in like choosing to write a sonnet. And then where does it get published? Who's reading it? What are they reading into it as a result of its form? Um, That's just like another literary layer. Um, But more importantly, this is, of course, a poem about lynching and fits into a strong tradition of anti-lynching poetry that was particularly prevalent during the 20s and 30s because lynchings were becoming more and more common and an understanding of action against lynching and an anti-lynching movement that had existed for quite a while was sort of gaining force and strength. Um, Two years before this poem was written, and for a total of 18 years, the NAACP flew a flag outside of their, uh, I believe their headquarters, that just said a man was lynched yesterday. From 1920 to 1938, they flew that flag with that message. Um, And this whole, that whole period and sort of where this poem fits in is towards the tail end of what is commonly known as the nadir of race relations in the United States, which is the sort of from 
the post-reconstruction period, reconstruction ends in 1877 because Rutherford B. Hayes decides that he wants to be president more than he cares about reconstruction. So he strikes an electoral deal to get into office and promises to remove federal troops from the South. Rutherford B. Hayes, first president who lost the popular vote and won the electoral college. After Hayes strikes this electoral deal and agrees to remove federal troops from the South, there begins this both extrajudicial and in many cases judicial effort to roll back the progress, which is sort of startling progress made in the 12 years of actual reconstruction, during which there were many black elected officials, um, black people in the South were able to vote and have influence and actually begin the process of literal reconstruction from 1877 until pretty much World War II and in some cases beyond, but the, the period that's usually identified as from about 1877 to, you know, about World War II um, is this sort of nadir of race relations in the United States. And it is the time during which lynchings flourish, during which the KKK reinvigorates itself in the early 20th century, during which, uh, you know, black people are kept from voting in the South, and there's all sorts of different forms of, of violence and segregation um, and Supreme Court decisions, Plessy versus Ferguson happens during this time, um, that are all put in place, uh, essentially finding new and creative ways to, to take away Black people's power in the United States. So that's just a little bit of the historic backdrop that leads into this moment in the 20s and 30s when there is more action generally, because people come back from World War I and there are the beginnings, the seeds are being sown after World War I by a lot of the lawyers who will end up, you know, training the generation that fights the, the court cases that begin having an influence on civil rights. Um, during that time, there's also this, this beginning uh, of an increase in the anti-lynching movement in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, no, that is um, all like, yeah, very important context um i was reading something and i i think there there's recently now um what was it like nearly 6500 documented cases of lynching i believe um which is both probably far lower than the actual number um but just kind of a staggering amount um and yeah, it's it's connection. There's a lot of things you said that I think is really important. Um, to reconstruction is like such a a key thing. Um, and I was, I think, I was reading an interview with Nicholas Creary, uh, who's a historian, I believe, and he was sort of saying how like like black economic success was one of the kind of principal reasons for lynchings um and which sort of came you know uh through reconstruction but um then became like uh you know it lynchings became a tool of enforcing Jim Crow laws in the South um, and not just in the South, although primarily in the South. Um, but also interesting 
from this interview, you know, we, we talked about um, the wonderful poem uh, last time, the um, could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers? Um, and, you know, we're still like in uh, the wake of George Floyd's murder and there have been other police murders of black people since then. Um, in Atlanta, uh, Richard Brooks, um, and there's other, um, you know, Breonna Taylor still has yet to, justice has clearly so, has been so far from being done in Breonna Taylor's case. Um, but one point Creary makes in this interview, which, which we'll definitely link to, which I found very interesting, is that, you know, um, and this 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 interview happened before George Floyd, I believe, but after the murder of Ahmad Arbery, who was the man who was you know, hunted down while he was um, just on a run, a black man. That police shootings, uh, many people have argued, are the sort of modern day lynchings, um, and you know, he sort of says that like oppression doesn't end, it just adapts. Basically, Creary argues that the police took over that role and became a sort of like um, state lynching institution, um, at least in part. Um, and, you know, if it's, it's really interesting. I mean, he was saying you can look at the data and there's a there's a direct correlation of like when lynchings go down in number, police shootings of black people go up in number, um, and the rate of police shootings is pretty comparable to what we think the rate of lynchings was in the time of enslavement. You had a formal quote unquote legal institution of oppression and violence and extraction, you know, in the form of enslaving black people. And then following the abolition of slavery, you have reconstruction and then you have like um, Jim Crow sort of tries to formalize a new kind of legal, you know, um, oppression and extraction but you, I feel like my interpretation of some aspect of lynchings is that you have white communities feeling the need to exert this kind of power and this, this kind of public spectacle of violence and fear in order to maintain their ability to like you know, keep black communities as, as both an economic and like a social political underclass. Um, but without slavery and without sort of like the modern police state, you don't have yet a formal institution of doing that. And so like what emerges is kind of an informal, you know, vigilante, um, kind of system of lynching and is perpetuated because law enforcement looks the other way you know one, one of the peculiar 
horrors of lynching specifically is that it's a public act. Um, the technical definition of lynching involves gathering a bunch of people together to do the killing. Um, it's not just, you know, I mean, I think many things can and should qualify under the umbrella of lynching based on cultural and historical context, but the technical definition is about a group. And what you see in a lot of lynching poems, including this one, the lynching, where you see the end of the poem where all of these people are gathering around the dead body and uh, you know, there's the women who have no pity and then there's the children who are learning that this is a way to be and, you know, lynchers and little lads lynchers that were to be. So it really is like a communal act of violence and a communal statement of unpersoning to someone in every possible way. There's the unpersoning and ending their life. Um, By the end of this poem, even the poem is referring to the dead body uh, as a dreadful thing that has been so mutilated by the act, which was often a big part of lynching. There was also, you know, burning and tarring and feathering and all kinds of other, you know, mutilations done to to bodies. I think you've really, um, that it's, it's about finding new ways to institute communal like violence and control. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Um, Yeah. And also in the poem, there's the line, um, you know, there's all night, a bright and solitary star. And then there's the parenthetical hung pitifully or the swinging char, you know, and like char has that, that burning burnt, um, which is just very painful and appalling and atrocious to think about. But I think you're right. The, there's yeah there's two elements that are very interesting uh, yeah that last and little lads lynchers that were to be is like so chilling um and part of it i don't know part of it is the antiquated language like makes it at such a remove in a way that then when you like put it in the like then when it's about like you're, oh, these little kids are, you know, watching this lynched body and are like, okay, this is like a good thing or an acceptable thing, or I will do this later in my life when I become an adult kind of thing. Um, The like sheer depravity of that situation, like juxtaposed with little lads and, that were to be um is i think the lads is definitely intentional like uh and like the alliteration of little lads lynchers that were to be is like so expertly done and so horrifying um and i think it's like extra jarring because of the the kind of the the old syntactical sort of reversals in that that were to be kind of thing. I think that's super interesting. And I also think it's a line that has gained power over time because when this poem was written, I think that probably wasn't like a notable syntactical move. You know, I think it probably was just like, that's kind of how poems are. It's not too removed from a more formal style, which was fairly common. Um, But I think particularly when I read that now, 
the combination of it being antiquated in style, but also being a forward-looking statement, to me, makes it more of an indictment of the ways that this action that seems so old and so out of date, like, I think if you're, especially if you're a white person growing up in the United States, you probably think of lynchings or you learn about lynchings as something that we don't do anymore, uh, you know, as a society or that are like this reprehensible thing from the past, which of course is like banished, but they of course, in fact, have continued um, both, you know, lynchings in, in the, you know, most, abysmal sense which have continued until incredibly recently and in many other contexts as you described they've continued under other names that combination of sounding old-timey while also pointing forward both literally and describing kids who are going to grow up to possibly do this or at least think that it's okay um but just the idea that it continues forward i found that that juxtaposition was an incredibly powerful yeah that's such a good point I know that's that's the kind of thing that's been sticking with me so much um and you know and like yeah like the women thronged to look but never a one showed sorrow in her eyes of steely blue and it's a strange thing because you know in this interview he was saying you know in these articles that were about the lynchings that would happen you know in the newspapers like after the fact Apparently, the state's attorney or the county coroner's office would investigate, uh, and it was like, what was the cause of death? And it's like, it was always like, he met his death at the hands of parties unknown. Except that they were in the picture in the paper the same day. Right. And that, you know, as the uh, we did talk about one poem that had to do with... Uh, to do with lynchings, Ray Gonzalez's The Lynching Postcard in Duluth, Minnesota, um, which is an earlier episode. Um, but there was a, a practice of, of sending postcards to people and the, the picture on the postcard was, was of a lynching um, and of the, the white crowd, you know, looking at the black body. And there, so there's this simultaneous like communal very, very public participation and, you know, fiendish glee um, in, in the act. And then also this like total erasure of responsibility and lack of accountability. The other, the other parallel that he points out between um, like uh, lynchings and police shootings is that the conviction rates for the two are basically the same which is to say nearly zero um so that if you think about how many police officers have been convicted of killing black people and how many people were properly convicted um of particip of of lynching someone um you know it's in the like one percent one thing that is I felt was subtle about this, but as I was rereading it, I feel like is a really, I don't know, it's a very interesting part of the poem, but just the way that it begins, like his spirit is smoke ascended to high heaven and his father, and father there I take to be like God, um, 
by the cruelest way of pain has bidden him to his bosom once again so that you know the heavenly father is bringing this black man who's been lynched back up to heaven um the awful sin remains still unforgiven um and there has also been written this is a side note but relevant to this poem that uh, lynchings are a kind of crucifixion. Um, and that very, you know, if you think about all the ways that Jesus was killed, it was a communal killing, like a kind of hanging, very public. And it was sort of done for some purpose. Like, and he was brutalized ahead of time as well, which was often a feature of, you know, these lynchings that happened in the South and exactly. across the country. Exactly. Um, which has a lot of charged meaning that I don't quite know how to make sense of, but that's definitely being, I think, sort of called um, in the beginning of this poem, you know, his spirit is smoke ascended to high heaven, like his father, Jesus as the son, um, but the awful sin remains still unforgiven, which I think is like such a, um, devastating, but like brilliant kind of twist on, you know, Jesus died so that the sins would be forgiven, but it's like, not in this case, we have not forgiven this sin. Um, and then there's this kind of like, just the fact that the, the star is what is hanging pitifully over the swinging char so that there's a hanging above a hanging and that the star is, is a, a light, um, but it's also hung. Um, it also continues the sort of double meaning with Christ because I think in the star you both get the reference to the star that guided the three kings to the baby Jesus's bed, but it's also can be a reference to the North Star, which would guide, you know, people who had escaped slavery. Um, yeah. So I think that that's, to me, that both when it's a solitary star, I feel like that's both the little star of Bethlehem and, and the North Star. I think that's really right. Um, especially because the the parentheses, it's like all night a bright and solitary star, and then perchance the one that ever guided him, um, the the guiding idea of the star, which is which is in both both those kinds of stars. Um, I just I don't know, like I I like there's a question of you know what do you what do you choose to show when you're talking about a lynching? Like you could have a poem that, you know, the, um, the Richard Wright poem between the world and me, the speaker is the one being lynched, I believe. And like, is you, you read the process of him being, you know, tied up and, beaten and tarred and and it's really horrifying and really brutal um and that aspect of it is certainly you know like um incredibly powerful and um like you don't want to 
never be a you know like avoid the brutality of the act because it certainly is incredibly brutal but i but i what i appreciated in this one with the like in the beginning i don't know the 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 person the victim is given the most reverential and divine representation you could imagine you know his spirit is smoke ascended to high heaven and the circumstances are horrible but like this is a divine being you know and like um i just i appreciate like that element that this isn't just a body that has been brutally like ruined and this is not also just it's a human but it's also not just a human this is like a human with real like transcendent you know beauty and value um and i think like beginning that way is such a um a beautiful thing and then really like the most ugly horrifying um you know appalling part of it is not the dreadful thing you know or the char it's the little lads the lynchers that were to be that dance you know um like that's what's disgusting in the poem i think that's such a good point and so well put and what it has me realizing as you're saying it is that for a poem titled the lynching you don't actually see the killing or the lead up to it this is entirely aftermath and the focus is on the horror of what's left and the communal rejoicing in terms of what claude mckay is saying the lynching is that focus which we touched on a little bit but i'm i'm realizing how intense it is the focus is entirely on you know the community the aftermath what has been done and how it is treated not so much the act of killing itself um yeah which i think is is interesting because like lynching poems obviously it's a a pretty broad genre um that comes at the subject in different ways so um in terms of some of what you were talking about also with the like crucifixion imagery Langston Hughes has the poem uh, Christ in Alabama, which really sort of takes that directly on, which was written, I think nine years after this. Um, but Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, the haunted Oak, which is his, one of his poems on the subject of lynching tells it from the point of view of the tree. So mm. there's, there's sort of a wide variety of different, ways of approaching the subject but yeah i'm struck by how much this is really focused on yeah the the women who have no sorrow in their eyes of steely blue and the little lads also what a great way to say white ladies (laughs) it's like you know here's the thing right (laughs) chuck berry is not known as like a subversive songwriter right but he has a song great song called brown-eyed handsome man it's not just about he's brown eyes he's talking about himself oh 
arrested on charges of unemployment. He was sitting in the witness stand. The judge's wife called up the district attorney. She said, free that brown-eyed man. If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man. Uh, and, and it runs through a bunch of different scenarios in which the hero of the song in all these different settings is a brown-eyed, handsome man. The song knows what it's doing. Chuck Berry knows what he's saying. Yeah. And sure, Buddy Holly covered it. But like, I thought of that when I read uh, these, these women who thronged to look, but never a one showed sorrow in her eyes of steely blue. Yeah, that's good. I like that. One thing bringing this all up to the present and touching on a lot of what we were talking about in terms of connective historical tissue is that Brian Stevenson, who uh, is known for the Equal Justice Initiative and for working with uh, death row inmates and has been a, an incredibly strong advocate for criminal justice reform and uh, has shone a lot of light in the ways that the criminal justice system is designed to treat um, especially black people, but you know, people of color unfairly. Uh, he has been instrumental in creating the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And as part of that, there is the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And a portion of what that museum is about is drawing attention to the practice of lynching and commemorating those who died from lynching. And there was huge pushback to that. People were not pleased about the fact that this was coming into existence. Um, and I think that uh, in general, lynching is an under-discussed, under-represented you know, subject in the story of civil rights and the story of white terror on black communities. Because... I think even though the story is told, I don't know that it's always framed as, you know, the one of the main motivating events in the popular civil rights movement was the lynching of Emmett Till. A lynching is, is what, you know, and, and the horror of seeing what a lynching looked like um, when it was a boy, um, bringing that to a wider audience is part of what, gained greater public sympathy and understanding of what was actually happening and what had been happening for decades on a vast scale in, you know, many parts of the country. Uh, I think the, the centrality of that and also not just the act of lynching, but as we've been discussing in this episode, the vast number of people who were writing on the subject, who were working against it, that it was a, a true civil rights movement that was happening against violence that was happening in the 1920s and 30s before what we usually think of as the civil rights movement. Like this was a, a concerted effort. It was a, a piece of popular culture, as we've discussed previously with these postcards that are circulating. It was on the minds of the nation for decades. And it is not, I don't think, treated with that level of historical memory as a practice. I don't think that we as a nation often enough interrogate what it means that this is something that was done for decades on end, similar to how we don't uh, reckon enough with the history of the various mechanisms of white terror, lynching probably being the most dramatic. I really agree. I, I have been, I've heard that the, the memorial is like a truly just like 
I don't know what adjective you would use, but um, I have not been. But from those I know who have visited, they kind of similar to what you're describing. It's not something that is easy to articulate. It's definitely somewhere that I I want to I want to go. Yeah, me me as well. Should we uh, read it again? Yeah, with all that, let's uh, let's <laughs> read it again. This is The Lynching by Claude McKay. His spirit is smoke ascended to high heaven. His father, by the cruelest way of pain, had bidden him to his bosom once again. The awful sin remained still unforgiven. All night, a bright and solitary star, perchance the one that ever guided him, yet gave him up at last to fate's wild whim, hung pitifully o'er the swinging char. Day dawned, and soon the mixed crowds came to view the ghastly body swaying in the sun. The women thronged to look, but never a one showed sorrow in her eyes of steely blue. And little lads, lynchers that were to be, danced round the dreadful thing in fiendish glee. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. <laughs>